this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. God, may we be able to say those words. Father, I mean them. That we count it all joy, God. We count it all joy. God, you've been so good to us. I just look back on my own life and the faithfulness, Father, that you've shown time and time again, how we can all just look back and see how good and faithful you were to us. God, or maybe there's people in this room that are walking through a season where they haven't seen your faithfulness, God, but allow them just to be able to say those words, God, that you are with them in the fire. All things bring glory to you. to die for? What would it look like in a church to care most about the gospel? What would it look for a, like for a church to care most about the gospel? Above all, above everything else, what would it look like to care most about the gospel? I wonder what we would be willing to die for. Would you be, what would you be willing to be burned at the stake for? What would you be willing to take the cross for? What would you be willing to die for? Would you be willing to die for the gospel message of Jesus Christ preached to people who are far from God, distant from salvation, who don't understand the grace of God and the mercy of God by grace through faith? Would you be willing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ even if it meant you might die? Would you be willing to die for the style of small groups in a church? Sunday school or life group. Would you be willing to die for the church bulletin, the way it looks, if it's here? Would you be willing to die for the style of music that's in a church? What would you be willing to die for and what would it look like for the church to care most about the gospel? On July 6th, 1415, John Huss one of my heroes of the faith, historical theologian and preacher. He said this, he said, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. This is as he was taken to a cathedral, dressed in his priestly garments, led to a stake to be burned to death as he would sing the Psalms. 
John Huss, John Wycliffe, and Martin Luther. John Wycliffe influenced John Huss so much that he was willing to die for this gospel that John Wycliffe had translated that he could read. And Martin Luther later picks up sermons that were written so that he would be inspired to this very day, October 31st, 1517, knock onto doors and, and drill into doors and drill into hearts and minds and theologians and churches the idea of the 95 Thesis, that we are not saved by money, we are not saved by works, we are not saved by being a part in a building, in a church building, or part of a church. We are saved by grace through faith, and that is it. Even to this day, we still fight this battle. We fight the question of how then will we be saved, and who then is the church? Even today, churches still take up money in the respect of believing that that's their salvation. Still call people to give that others might be saved. If they give enough, they'll pray. If they give enough, they'll be saved. If they give enough, it'll be easier. If they give enough, they'll have prosperity. Finances and works drive salvation in many churches today, and we're still fighting the same battle. And I can't imagine what John Huss, John Wycliffe, and Martin Luther would say today when they see churches divided, not based on the gospel and not based on fighting the spite of works don't save you, but the grace of God saves you. But he saw churches divided by finances, divided by carpet, by chairs, by pews, by musical style. John Huss was willing to die for the gospel, but I'm sure he would not have been willing to die for the color of the carpet. What are you willing to die for? We're going to look at Acts chapter 15 this morning, and as you turn in your Bibles to Acts 15 verses 1 through 35, I want you to be able to walk away today knowing that we should not create unbiblical expectations for fellowship and we should not create biblical expectations for salvation outside of God's mercy. We should not create unbiblical expectations for fellowship and we should not create biblical expectations for salvation outside of God's mercy. I think it's challenging to us when we think about it this way. The strongest bond to the church that you are part of is preferences and friendships. Then we have not created a church based on God saving us, but on us choosing each other. We choose preferences, we choose friends, we choose groups, and we find fellowship, and we are content in that, and we are bound together, binded together, not by the gospel message, but by what we like. Today, I want to challenge us as a church to see Acts chapter 15. My brother. So good to see you here. I'm sorry. Acts chapter 15, knowing that the gospel message of Jesus Christ unites us. Everything else that divides us should be thrown at the feet of the cross. So as we look, I want you to look at Acts chapter 10, 34 through 35. If you remember, you'll remember it this way. Peter 
having seen a vision and speaking with Cornelius and coming into the house of the Gentiles with all this different worship and different things around him and people who he didn't know. He comes in having been brought to this place and finds Cornelius and Cornelius has had a vision too. He has had a vision and both together the Holy Spirit moves, preaches and changes and transforms the people's lives who are there with him in that moment. So as Paul, Peter, and these elders are going to think about the idea of should Gentiles be brought into the kingdom of God, they go back to experiences. Peter saw God transform the Gentiles' lives. The nations would be transformed by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. They would be transformed. And so for Peter, it's like if God can transform them, if God is pouring his Holy Spirit out on them, then they should be part of the kingdom of God. They should be saved too. We should not reject them or keep them away or put any unnecessary expectations on them. No, bring them in. It's one chapter later, Acts chapter 11, when Peter goes to Antioch. And in Antioch, he's eating with the Gentiles and Paul sees him. And it's recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul sees him and he says, Peter, you were sitting with the Gentiles, but when the Jews came in, you shifted and left the Gentiles to sit with the Jews because you would not be associated with the Gentiles. That's right after Peter had just learned how to associate rightly with the Gentiles. God gave him a vision. God gave him an experience. And yet he still struggled to live it out. Brothers and sisters, having a right theology does not always lead to right action. My professor used to say, right theology should lead to right worship. I hope that today we can see theology line up with action and you today will look at your own life and examine what you've done in your life to say, does the theology that God loves all people despite where they're from, what they look like, what they talk like, what language they speak, despite what, who they are or where they're from, God loves them and has extended grace to them and mercy to them. All of this for Peter and for Paul culminates in Acts chapter 15, which we're going to look at today. It's about 80, 50, probably 10 years after Acts 10 happened, after Stephen had died, after Cornelius had been transformed by the grace of God, after Peter had gone and done missions, we come to the Jerusalem Council, a moment in time which would dictate missions forever. This moment, this decision would dictate whether the gospel would go into the nations and spread like wildfire or whether it would be restricted and they would draw the nations only to Israel and to look like Israel. It would essentially be this. Would the people look like Christ or would they look like Jews? Would we be saved by grace or would we be saved by being Jewish? This is the culmination. This is the climax moment. This is everything that we've been waiting for in Acts. For the moment that we, the church of God in this room today, we would experience grace upon grace upon grace as Paul and Peter, Jews, would advocate for our acceptance into the kingdom of God. Had this not gone the right way, you and I in this room today would not be here by the grace of God through faith. We would be in here by circumcision through Mosaic law. Praise God. He is good. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. 
Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's our issue. Our issue is that there is a certain group of people that says you have to do this in order to be saved. But the gospel has been and will always be that we could do nothing to be saved. And because of it, Jesus Christ came and did everything that we were supposed to do for us, dying the death we couldn't die, raising from the dead in a way that we couldn't raise from the dead so that we would be forgiven and freed and live for eternity with him despite our inabilities. Unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved, they say. But Paul and Peter and James are in the crowd. You'll know, you'll remember Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. One of my favorite passages, and I challenge you to, to read this and dig into this truth. In, and in Titus 3, 4 through 5, it says that you were saved not according to the works of righteousness that you have performed, but by the mercy of God. Paul, Peter, in the room, listening to this conversation. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. Brothers and sisters, there is something worth fighting for. There is something worth engaging. There is something worth debating, and it is the gospel. This is what they are fighting for. This is what they are debating. This is what they are clashing for. If we're going to clash, if we're going to have discussions and business meetings and behind the scenes and discussions about theology, let's have it about the gospel. Let's not divide ourselves by silly nonsense. Let's be united by the gospel message of Jesus Christ that all people can gather together as one by grace through faith. And so Paul and Barnabas, man, they stand their ground, engage in serious argument and debate. Verse 3, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. And you've got to, like, Luke throwing that in there is just, it's awesome. I think about why did Luke throw this uh, little bit in there? It It doesn't really do anything for the story except this. Paul and Barnabas are going to fight, advocate, defend the Gentiles being brought. That's us. Us being brought into the kingdom of God. He's going to fight for it. And on the way, he goes to some Gentiles and he's like, hey, let me tell you everything that's been happening. Right? Let me tell you what's been happening in the Gentiles. And it encourages them and stirs them up in faith. As he goes to fight for them, he's loving them and encouraging them. May we not lose sight of people. May we not lose sight of heaven and hell as we dig into beliefs and theology, as we have discussions, as we have business meetings, as we have weekly meetings and ministry meetings and all these different discussions, leadership trainings. May we not lose sight of the reality that we are making disciples. We are not simply doing business. It's not a transaction. It's not a business meeting that just solely exists to fund things. This is a mission of God that has called us to make disciples in all nations. And Paul, on his way to have a theological debate, lives out the theology he's going to preach. Would we as a church live the theology that we believe? Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Man, you know, I, I don't see these guys and think, man, these just, they just have ill intent. Like they are here just to cause issue. They are here to disrupt what God is doing. I think what they're doing is they're essentially coming in going, man, Paul, we hear everything that's happening. Peter, we see what's happening. But hey, remember, they're the people of God. And remember, the people of God are the ones who are Jewish. And so if they're going to become the people of God, they're going to have to become like us. They're going to have to look like the people of God, talk like the people of God, act like the people of God. They're going to have to be like the people of God if they are going to be accepted into this kingdom. I don't think they had ill intent. The problem is they have really bad theology. It's not that their intent's wrong. It's just their theology's so off. Paul would later say it's not by circumcision. It's by the grace of God through faith that we are saved, not by any works that we could do, Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us. So I don't know that they had bad intent, but I do know they had bad theology. And so in the moment, look at this, verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. I can only imagine, and you've got to like, man, just look with me in Galatians for a moment, like Galatians 2. You think in Galatians this story where Peter is sitting down with the, uh, the Gentiles and, he and the Jews come and he shifts over to the Jews and Paul sees this take place and Paul responds to him. And I want you to hear what Paul says to him. It's in this conversation. He says, then the rest of the Jews joined in his on his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, who's Peter, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you are doing something that nobody else can do. You're compelling people to live like Jews when you aren't even doing it. He continues, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified, they're not redeemed, saved, delivered by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. Later, he says, if I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I think Paul spoke to Peter in that moment. I think Peter heard him, and what he heard came to this conclusion when he said, in verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Paul would tell Peter in a moment, he would say, Peter, 
The same God that's speaking through me to the Gentiles is speaking through you to the Jews. And the same God that's waking up the Gentiles to faith is waking up the Jews to faith. So why would that same God not be uniting them together, not based on their works or nationality, but based on the grace of God through faith alone? And so Peter stands up and says what he's been discipled to think and do by Jesus and by Paul. He says he made no distinction between us and them. Verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have, even, have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. Why are you putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors? And you can like, can you all feel the tension just raising a little bit right now? Like Peter's speaking to the Jews and and James is there, Peter's there, Paul's there, apostles are there, elders are there. These are like the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem who are sending missionaries out to all the nations. They're all there in one room arguing, debating. And Peter goes, you guys are putting laws on them that you're not even following. Who does that sound like? It sounds just like Jesus, right? Man, he calls them out. Look what happens in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Just silence. Like, okay, tell us of what he has done. You can imagine just that tension and that excitement. Hopefully people are getting pumped up about what God is doing through the Jews and the Gentiles alike. It says, after they stopped speaking, James responded. And y'all, like, James responding to me is so impactful. You got to think about James. This is like 20 years after Jesus' death, something like that. James has learned a lot, gone through a lot, led a lot. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem to the most extent. He speaks a lot of theology, a lot of truth into the church. They pretty much follow James. James and Peter had a lot of history together. They had, had done a lot of life together. They had a lot of experiences of sending out and theolo- theological discuss, discussion and even following Jesus. Knowing family and knowing friends together, tons of experiences together. In this very moment, James could stand up and persuade people to follow Peter or to abandon this truth. So James responded, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. That's talking about resurrection. He's going to resurrect the people. Verse 17, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those, uh, had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Man, James standing up is so powerful. He leads them towards truth that salvation cannot be brought about by circumcision or by any works of righteousness. Man, we need to understand this. We need to, we need to implement this into our life. But it's really interesting how James ends it, right? 
Is anybody else like, man, you just said they don't have to do anything to be saved, and then you're like, hey, but remind them they need to do four things. It's like we got rid of one, now we got to do four? This is more difficult. Go back to verse 1. Here's the, the key point here. They wanted circumcision to lead to salvation. What Peter and James and Paul are arguing for is that when we gather together to worship God, when we are all together in the Lord's presence, we need to worship God, not the idols of the Gentiles, not the sexual immorality of the Gentiles. Because remember, when Gentiles would go worship at the temple, it was most often they would, be, uh, they would cook food, eat the food that they would deliver to the idols, to the different gods, and that would be their worship time. They would have prostitutes. That would be their worship time. Sex was a god for them, and they would worship through prostitutes. And so when Paul's right, Paul and Peter are speaking to them, what he's saying is the way that the Gentiles worship is not the way that we will worship. When you're in the church gathered together, that's not the way we're going to do things. And so I think rather than protecting salvation by grace through faith, what Peter and Paul are speaking into is, what are we going to do when we worship together? And so remember the main point. We cannot dictate our fellowship together. This church cannot be dictated by unbiblical things. But we also won't dictate our salvation based on biblical things that look good but aren't the grace and mercy of God. Circumcision is not part of the grace and mercy of God. It should not lead towards salvation. It should be extension from salvation. And likewise, our fellowship is not dictated by unbiblical things. If you're in here today and you're like, man, I believe in Jesus Christ. I love God, and, and I know that I'm redeemed by God. I know that I've been saved by His grace and all those things. Man, we are brothers and sisters. That's what unites us together by grace through faith, not by any works that we could do. I want to read this letter to you really quick that they write and give you some application. Verse 22, then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, both leading men from uh, among the brothers. They wrote, from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you among, along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision in ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from anything uh, that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering with the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. And after spending some time there, they sent back in peace by, by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. What are you willing to die for? In Acts chapter, 20, uh, chapter 15, verses 20 through 21, it gives us a picture of what it looks like to be the church of God, understanding when we might tempt one another. You know, I, I see this passage, and I see some of those struggles that the Jews might deal with with Gentiles uh, in worship together, and I, especially the one about, like, uh, 
meat from a, something that was strangled or the blood. Some people uh, interpret that as you shouldn't eat meat with blood. And I, I think it's funny because you shouldn't eat rare steak or something like that. Like it just makes me kind of laugh. But even this week I, I cooked some medium rare steak. So um, <laughs> you look at those and you go, man, are these rules that we have to abide by? Or is this us assisting a brother and sister and not committing a sin? And I think that's where we land. I think what we, when we come away from this, what we say is, man, if there's a temptation in your life that you cannot stand up against, man, let us as brothers and sisters come alongside you. Accountability, encouragement. Let us come around each other to encourage one another to do what is right, to do what is good because of our salvation that God has given us that we live a life of love and of freedom. And so, you know, you offer me steak, I'm not going to eat it. It's been two years since I've had steak. I'm not tempted by it. You can put it in front of me all day long and it's not going to tempt me. But don't put things in front of our brothers and sisters that tempt one another. If there's a sin you struggle with, don't come around each other encouraging that sin struggle, pushing that sin struggle on someone else, tempting someone else. Brothers and sisters, we've got to watch out for one another. We have enough of the enemy trying to tempt us. We shouldn't attempt one another, right? So I want to leave you with this challenge as Rachel and Casey come. We're going to lead worship. And I'm going to leave you with thinking. I just want you to think. I want you to think back through your life. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Have you set up anything for anyone set up an expectation of them that they had to accomplish in order to be saved? Have you set up an expectation of a church that's unbiblical, setting up this expectation you've denied fellowship from someone or something? You've said, if you can't abide by this, you can't be a part of our church. Man, the church, again, should be a place of healing, not a place of hurt. But so often we create a place of hurt because all we do is create expectations that are unbiblical. Biblical things, abide by those. Let's challenge each other with those. Let's encourage each other in those. But man, if somebody leaves because they're frustrated about the seats that we sit in or the hymnals that people read from or the, uh, the worship songs that we lead with or the drums or the projectors or whatever it may be, if somebody leaves and says, man, I cannot have fellowship with you because of this and it's not biblical, then we are dividing God's church not based on salvation, not based on theology, but based on our preferences. I cannot imagine what John Huss, Martin Luther, much less Paul, Peter, and Jesus would say if he saw his church being divided over things that are so secondary to the gospel. Church, may we be united by the gospel message of Jesus Christ and nothing else. If all we have is a field and a preacher... Let's worship and hear the word of God. If that's all we have, we'll still worship. If all you want is hymnals and we don't have any hymnals, can you still worship? If If all we have is a room with no projector, can we still worship? What are you willing to die for? Man, if we'll split churches based on translations... If we'll die for the sake of biblical translations, which one's right and wrong, 
We're not bound by the gospel. We're bound by preference. We must stop putting a yoke on people's lives that they cannot bear, much less that we cannot bear. If you have an expectation set up, I encourage you right now in this moment, take some time to pray. I I just ask you to even close your eyes right now and just to think on this. You know, it helps me to process this way. Our church, Westminster Baptist Church, has three words in it. Westminster Baptist Church. Westminster will not save you. Westminster's not Christian, but there are Christians in Westminster. Baptists will not save you. You can't say, I'm a Baptist, I'm saved. No. There are some Christians who are Baptists, but not all Baptists are Christians. Being Baptist does not make you saved, but being the church of God, bought by God, adopted by God as sons and daughters because of His great mercy and grace towards us, that's what makes us the church. That's what makes us saved by God. That's what unites us together. That alone, not anything else, unites this body of believers in this room together. If it's anything else, we'll divide. If it's anything else, we'll get frustrated. If it's anything else, we'll separate what God has brought together. May the mission of God not be thwarted by our own preferences. Can you imagine if in Acts chapter 15, the verdict was not that it's by grace through faith alone, but that it was by circumcision that everyone had to obey the Mosaic law. You in here today would be required to follow the Mosaic law. Everything in it, and if you faltered in one bit, you would be guilty. But by the grace of God, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, did what we couldn't do, and now by His grace we are free. We are forgiven. We have life, and we are the church. We will not be divided based on our views of Sunday schools and life groups or bulletins or our favorite football team or our vaccine status or our political affiliation or the service we attend or the dress code that we're wearing or the denomination we're a part of or the church that we participate in, we are bound together by the gospel. Let us not be divided by anything else. What are you willing to die for? Pray with me in this moment. God, would you change our hearts, transform our hearts as we walk away? Would you help us to engage people with love and care, with gentleness, not with unbiblical expectations, but God, would you help us to see people with your eyes, with your heart, with your love? Would you help us, Father, to build a church that's not based on musical preferences? not based on comfort, not based on air conditioning, not based on chairs, not based on groups or Sunday schools, not based on anything other than you. And let everything else be a flow, an overflow from your grace and the excitement, the mission that you've given us. May our hearts be towards praising you and not towards bickering about the things of this world. May we, Father, find the same resolve as Paul, Peter, and James to preach the gospel message despite any rejection and despite any dissension and despite the party of the Pharisees stepping in to bring expectations that were not right for salvation. May we stand firm and preach the gospel into a culture that needs it so desperately. 
God, unite us together. Unite families in this moment. Unite friends. Reunite families. Reunite friends back in this moment, God, together. Let us be united by your grace and mercy and your love. And Father, I pray if there's there's anybody in this room who has never experienced your grace and mercy, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out so evidently in their lives. They'd be so inspired in their life by your Holy Spirit right now to trust you and to believe in you that they would take that next step. Complete surrender, complete trust your salvation, that you came and lived a life we couldn't live because we were sinners and you aren't. Died a death we couldn't die because you took all that sin on your shoulders. Father, you raised from the dead your son, and I cannot raise from the dead, but because of his resurrection, I can. So, Father, if there's anybody in this room who's never heard this gospel message, never believed this gospel message, I pray, Father, that they will today. Would you move in our hearts? transform us. We love you and praise you. In your son's name. Amen.
May we never rest until the whole earth will shout his praises. Amen. Remember, you're sent in the midst of darkness to make it happen. Let's go help the world shout his praises and find life. Have a great week. We'll see you later. Oh, and by the way, thank you to Miss uh, Sophie being here this morning. Our intern is back, and we just want to say hello to you. And we have a discovered lunch tomorrow, uh, next week after this service. We hope to see you there. Have a great week have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.